Hey everybody, welcome back to another installment of Observations. I am Rob Liefeld. Thank you for taking this Observations journey with me. I am having such a good time recounting all of my uh, kind of walk through the comic business from the eyes of an avid fan in 1975 when I started pulling those comics off those spinner racks and I learned creators' names, I learned characters, I fell in love with characters, I fell in love with creators. We are back, continuing the journey, continuing to sail through, cover all this territory. There's so much that, that, that pieces together, that fits together in this giant puzzle. And early on, when I launched this podcast, we discussed how the Squadron Supreme was in the Avengers. And the Squadron Supreme was a very clear echo, or some would say homage, to the Justice League. There was a Superman echo homage. There was a Batman, an Aquaman, uh, a, a Hawkman. And over time, as Marvel, you know, asserted complete ownership over the Squadron Supreme, you would get like, oh, there's a Firestorm. There's a Wonder Woman. That uh, They would just continue to add very boldly, mimicking, homaging, you know, echoing the DC standards. And there's always been this uh, debate in comics. I, I think now every day I click on and somebody is saying, you know, well, without DC, there are no superheroes. And without, you know, they're the, the template for everything. And that Marvel just takes everything that they do. And then there's there's the reverse position that DC rips off Marvel. And then they're, they're both ripping off mythology. Anyway, today we are going to dive into not just character influence, but artistic influence. I've said time and again, it's the artists, the artist voices, the creators that inspire me to follow I did not buy a Batman comic until Frank Knight, Frank Miller jumped on Dark Knight. I, 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 when he was done, I was kind of done. When he was done with Daredevil, I was done. So today, influences, homages, we might even dive into swipes and cover this entire territory. And we're not going to do this alone. We are back, joined by Mr. Jimmy S.J. He owns a mansion. He owns a yacht. What is up, Jimmy? How are you? I only wish I had a blue check mark, just like you, Rob. Hey, but, we're working uh, on it. I am just stoked to be here. I've been digging the Rob observations. I've been digging all of the consuming as much as I can on podcasts and and comics, and there just doesn't seem to be enough. So, you know, I've been uh, eating up the Rob observations with a with a with a with a you know big, big spoon. spoon been absolutely big spoon. so thanks for for having me here no, jimmy it's great we 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 i our, our i i always love talking comics and um influences it's the thing that me and my buddies all throughout my comics career we have talked about influences the squadron supreme is clearly unabashedly influenced by the justice league of america and you know there, there's all there, there's the Doom Patrol X Men argument. There's there's all these different. I mean, it, that's really uncanny. Doom Patrol and X Men and arrived within months of each other. Both had guys in wheelchairs. Um, both were leading these rejected weirdos. That that's how it was seen in the '60s. You know, Marvel called them mutants. Um, so I mean, influences run so deep in comics, and and there's and there just always seems to be an argument as to the source. And I, and, and I am one of those guys, I love to source stuff and I know you do too. And, you know, along the way, some people don't even understand uh, 
the, 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 all the different elements that go into an artist's work, their voice, their page design. And so we're going to jam with a whole bunch of that today. And, and again, it's no different than I always say music and I always say movies. And you know what? We're going to start with movies just real quick. Um, one of my favorite directors is Paul Thomas Anderson. And, you know, whether it was Boogie Nights or whether it was Magnolia, I just his early work was just astounding. And Jimmy Wheat talked about those movies all the time. And look, man, that guy is very clearly influenced by a director named Robert Altman, who made movies like the movies that Paul Thomas Anderson was putting out when Robert Altman was no longer making those movies. And I mean, cause you and I, we talk comics and movies all the time. And Absolutely. I know you love and, Paul Thomas. And, and I don't think, I don't think, I mean, it's only natural that these things don't happen in a vacuum. So of course there's going to be influences out there. And I mean, definitely with, with films, we see it all the time. And yeah, I mean like Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, whether it's the tracking shots or his emphasis on just lingering with these characters, he is uh, very much echoing the guys that he grew up digging. Today, Jimmy, I shared on the internet, on 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 social media. So I always knew, Jimmy, I, I 100% knew anybody who follows Steven Spielberg's career from his very first TV movie, Duel, um, that, that, that he was very influenced by Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock, director of The Birds, director of, uh, you know, um, come Psycho on. Psycho Rear Window. Thank you. Thank you. Like, come on, Psycho. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock is a master of his craft. And uh, young Steven Spielberg grew up wanting to be Alfred Hitchcock, incorporates a bunch of Hitchcock's approach to filmmaking. Uh, a lot of the so much of of what we like in Duel and and, and in Jaws is got that um, mysterious approach to the camera, the, the 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 way that he sets up his shots, he blocks moments. He's obviously influenced by Alfred Hitchcock. Well, they shared this excerpt today about Alfred Hitchcock refused to meet with Steven Spielberg. And, and that's was, heartbreaking. That was so heartbreaking for me to hear. Yeah, no, it's it, it like when I, I read it and I'm like, oh, this is crazy. And I guess they Hitchcock never went on record. He just mysteriously declined to ever interact with Spielberg. And Bruce Dern finally revealed in a memoir, in, in an interview that Alfred Hitchcock had come out to say, because Bruce Dern was like, come on, Alfred, you gotta, you gotta meet him. You gotta meet him. He, he, he loves your stuff. And Alfred said, is that that boy that made that fish movie? And literally the quote is, I, if I met him, I would just feel like such a whore and I would feel dirty if I shook his hand. And I mean, it was going around the internet today. I think everybody was, you're like, wow. And look, I've been there. I've, I've been, been fortunate enough to meet the people who have influenced me and they've been really kind. And then sometimes they're not so kind, but really the focus is influence, influence. If somebody as great as Steven Spielberg can say, yeah, I wear these influences on my sleeve and I'm, you know, doing this work that, that, that wouldn't be done other than the guy who came before me. Well, comics is full of this stuff. And I mean, I don't really know where to start, but I'm going to jump in. And the first time I really noticed like, whoa, that th this dude, Looks like this dude. 
is when I was collecting comics in like the early, the mid 70s, 75 through 77, 78, at that point, Marvel is doing this uh, dedicated line of reprint comics, Marvel Super Action, Marvel Triple Action, Marvel Tales, Marvel's Greatest Heroes. You know, they, they covered the early runs that were maybe five to six, seven, sometimes 10 years before my collecting at that time. The Avengers are in Marvel Triple Action. And I love Ultron. I had just read Ultron beating up the Avengers in a Jim Shooter, George Perez masterpiece. And then Marvel Triple Action comes out and it's got an early Ultron adventure. And, and the cool thing is the way Ultron's depicted in this story, he's only half a body and he floats on a sled. It's Ultron is just from the trunk up and then he's got this sled that he flies around in, but it's got this artist named Barry Smith. No Windsor. You will later come to know him as Barry Winslow Smith, his true British, you know, moniker. But Barry Smith looked just like Jack Kirby. 100% you thought you were reading the Jack Kirby comic. This guy is drawing like Jack Kirby that I'm getting in 1977. And I'm looking at the date and this is reprinted from like 1970, 1971. And if you go through it and uh, Barry Smith, young Barry Smith is doing his very best imitation of Jack Kirby, it is, I'm sure to the people of the time, you know, I can't say I was of that time. I wasn't there in 1970 when he was doing Avengers, Jimmy, but I'm telling you, man, uh, the, the funny thing is that because he could draw like Jack, he got uh, the notice of Stan Lee who said, I'm giving you work based on the fact that you can draw like Jack Kirby. So this is a guy who broke in, rewarded by the fact that he's doing Jack Kirby, okay? And Jimmy, if you ever saw this stuff, it is. I mean, and, and the first thing is that Stan uh, basically said, because you have such a Kirby-esque Kirby style, first he gave him an issue of the X-Men, then he gave him some Daredevil issues, and then he gave him his, his, uh, his Avengers issues. Now, the first time that he would move away from Kirby after all these jobs is when he lands on Conan. And that's when Barry Smith starts becoming the Barry Windsor Smith that we know now. But we're years away from the Barry Windsor Smith. What is somebody that you picked up where you go, hey, I see influence there. Or I, I, this guy looks like this guy. Is there is there somebody well, that comes to mind? Well, absolutely. When when I started when I started really consuming comics, I okay, like like everybody else, I was huge into the I was huge into the uh, image guys before there was image. So there was, you know, Rob, Jim and Todd, Eric Larson, all everybody over at Marvel Comics. Seems like that there was a lot of Art Adams. Seems like there's a lot of Art Adams going along. And so I definitely saw some influence definitely in in Todd McFarlane, definitely in, in Jim Lee, uh, in you, of course. And it just seems like if I couldn't get a monthly uh, Art Adams book and I could only get him on the covers of, of classic X-Men, at least I got some of that flavor elsewhere. So, um, so I think it's just, it's a matter that, that here's a, you know, popular visual language. This is what we're used to. And if somebody else has given it to us, you know, again, give, give me a serving of it. And, and you know, the funny thing is, like I said, because that's my peer group, and I've mentioned before how we were all completely biting off art. Because the thing about art is, 
as I mentioned earlier, he just didn't do a great volume of work. But what he did, you analyzed and you could kind of source it. And then you would um, try and take as much of what he was giving you into your own stuff. Because, again, I, I, I all I can say is when I saw Art Adams and he was the new guy that did this because and I've talked to my buddy Marat, Marat Michaels, who drew Brigade and he's drawn Deadpool Core and all these different books. We shared a studio. He was my assistant coming up in the business. I gave him his first work. And so we were kind of into the same stuff. And when I first met Marat at a convention in the uh, up at the L.A. Convention Center in the late 80s, he was talking about how much he loved John Byrne. And 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 we both agreed that at that time, whatever John Byrne drew was the best version of that character that you could imagine. And I think the really the real reason that the rivalry between Byrne and Perez worked so well is that Perez was drawing nothing but DC characters for almost six years. And when he drew a DC character, it looked exactly how you wanted that DC character to look. And Marvel and Byrne was doing it over at Marvel since George left high and dry in 1980. So we've got, you know, uh, this new kid on the block named Art Adams. And I don't care who it was, Spider-Man, Wolverine, Cyclops, everybody he drew. You're like, that's the best version of that character I've ever seen. It was this new, you know, tighter, that they were, they were more tout. They were more posed. The great, the biggest influence Art Adams has on my generation, more than the line work is art. If you see a character jumping up in the air at you, arms outspread and basically knees almost up to their chest and their legs bowing out, that leap, that kind of midair pose did not exist prior to Art Adams completely capitalizing it and 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 this kind of midair leaping pose. You can always kind of switch the arms, but that posing, these characters openly posing was and incorporating it into the work was was like one of the biggest influences that art would have on the rest of us. But it, it, it's funny going back. Um, so again, sometimes an artist, just his gestures. And, and I think another guy like that, and we're going to get to him later is Neil Adams. So many of the guys who bit off Neil Adams were the, the gestures. There, there was definitely Neil loved to foreshorten more than anybody else. And everybody who did Neil wanted to throw arms in your face, kick the legs back, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. I don't want to leave the Kirby stuff behind yet because at this point, there's also a guy that we know uh, named Jim Steranko. Jim Steranko came into the business as a Kirby clone. Again, those books are being reprinted. And Jim Steranko came in early on on Captain America, and he was basically doing Jack Kirby's Captain America. Very, if you put them side by side, it's, 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 they're very similar. Jim Stranko would not deny that he was heavily influenced by Jack. His figures were stout and they were square. And there was a style of rendering lines that, that Jack put on his, put on his work. But the thing with, with Jim is where he really started to pull away and his influence is seen is, is radical page designs. Uh, even incorporating the logo, uh, sound effects. He really got his own style of storytelling and started pulling away from Jack. But there is no doubt, early Steranko, again, he did X-Men issues. 
he 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 would follow in anything Jack touched. He was touching. I've got to believe Stan Lee. If he felt that way about Barry Smith, he felt that way about Stranko. But Stranko pulled away from Jack faster than maybe anybody in forming his own, you know, visual language. And then he would go on and continue that on Nick Fury and Shield again, another Kirby, you know, standby. And then Stranko goes there and he becomes even more experimental. But his Captain America and his Nick Fury evolve. He goes beyond Jack, but there's no, I mean, literally, these guys were looked at, looked, looked at as, as, as Kirby clones. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned the image guys, cause we're just all over the place with everybody who's listening today, cause this, this is how these conversations take place. And I know a guy that you and I've talked about, cause you mentioned Art Adams, but also I remember when I was, I had my studio, Extreme Studios, and I had not seen this first. A guy at the studio said, have you seen this? And plops down a comic book. And I thought it was some unpublished Todd McFarlane story. When in fact, it is this artist named Stephen Platt. And this guy, uh, especially his Moon Knight. And, and let's be honest, there's a Moon Knight issue that has Spider-Man in it, right? Oh, absolutely. There's, it's Spider-Man swinging on that front co cover. It's looking like Todd McFarlane. I mean, this was the second coming of Todd McFarlane. At, at least that was the hype at the time. And I felt it. I mean, I was fighting over getting the last copies in the comic store against other people. I mean, it was a race. It was, it was on. Moon Knight was a low seller at the time, even in the 90s. It was not. It was a book that was doing the low numbers. So like you said, those books were disappearing. Because suddenly Moon Knight, never hot before, not since Bill Sienkiewicz, maybe a decade or 12 years earlier. But now everybody's grabbing up these Moon Knights. But let's talk, I mean, the capes, kind of the, the tight pulled material on the costumes, right? The posers. Oh, and there's tatters, you know, it's like, yes. you know, ripped costumes and, and tatters and ripped masks and things that were very much... That was is definitely the visual language that Todd McFarlane was putting was now and with the rendering with the heavy rendering was very much like this new kid that people uh, people were gravitating to and the market was very much into let's look for the next rookie it's like a rookie baseball card um, you know mentality but so they gravitated to the, the Stephen Platt um, uh, profit issues because they were the truth you know that was they were the real deal they were they were hot books. And, and something really important to incorporate that we can go like that we got to come back to through all of this. When I saw the Barry Smith issues of the Avengers, when I saw the Jim Steranko issues of Captain America, Nick Fury, when I saw Stephen Platt, I never once went, oh, I'm so offended. Oh, what are these guys? Oh, how dare he look at Jack Kirby? How dare he? It, it always excited. It always never failed to excite when I would see somebody who is incorporating uh, a familiar style. You know, my, my uh, I love the, the song Just the Two of Us by Grover Washington Jr. I think it's Grover Washington Jr. And uh, you guys have all heard it. I'm not going to sing it and, 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 and destroy it. But it, I'm definitely it, not singing it either. So don't, okay. so don't look at me, man. Look, man, I, uh, I obviously I'm, I'm referencing once again, my, my yacht rock. Um, uh, background, but, but just the two of us is a, is a, is a cool 
jam and I'm, you know, driving around and I'm cranking it with my daughter as we're, you know, running errands and, uh, Grover Washington juniors, just the two of us was like a late seventies, early eighties, just R and B jam. But, you know, most people know just the two of us because Mr. Uh, Mr. Will Smith remade that song in like, is it 1997? Um, and, uh, it, he uses the hook, right? The, the, just the two of us through line builds his rap song around it. It's called just the two of us as well. And, uh, he bases, he bases it on Grover Washington Jr. And at no point did I go, how dare Will Smith take that song from Grover Washington Jr. And it was like, oh, this is cool. He's, he's refined it. And I think especially with Stephen Platt or any of these guys, they were refining. They were, there was enough Kirby, enough McFarlane. And, and eventually I, I definitely, as, as Stephen evolved, there was a period he was incorporating myself, Jim Lee, and Todd McFarlane all at the same time. But I'm going to tell you, there are people who you can tell, hey, man, I see your influences, and it sets them off, and they get totally offended, and they deflect, deflect, deflect. And then there's the guys who go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm totally into that. Um, and again, I just I don't know what it was like to drop off pages that looked like Jack Kirby at the time, but apparently, you know, Stan Lee is on record as telling Barry Windsor Smith, because your work is Kirby-esque, because you are clearly – aping the king i want more of that marvel loved jack marvel could not get enough of jack if if there's a you could say he was a house style at one point and and then segueing a little back to that era there's a guy named rich buckler he comes in he's drawing the fantastic four in 1974 and 1975 and he is drawing a lot like jack kirby and in some instances people have said well he's swiping you know, that thing shot of him hitting a guy is exactly Jack's shot of hitting a guy. And Joe Sinnott is inking Rich Buckler. So it really looks like Kirby because Joe has just been on the book forever. He's transitioning. He went from Kirby to Ramita Sr. to John Buscema and now Rich Buckler. And Rich Buckler is leaning in hard. And apparently Rich Buckler was like, Marvel asked me, to draw more like Jack Kirby. That's the look they wanted on the book. And, and, and I have always encountered different people and wanted to know, were you asked to draw like this? Were you asked to mimic or was that your choice? And, you know, in, 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 in like a Stephen Platt case, there was no Todd McFarlane Moon Knight. He applied all those Todd, Todd McFarlane tricks and put them on Moon Knight. And, the, but, and then when it was like the, and in case you're wondering, that Spider-Man issue, I'm pretty sure there's a bunch of Spider-Man homages through it that Steven is, is, can't hide his influences. So it, it's interesting. As I, as I said, I don't, I, I dig it when I see, when I can source somebody, right? It's exciting to me. Um, and especially if you can go back and watch where they grew from. And I'm going to tell you, man, sometimes they grow in a totally different way. And you're like, oh, I, I, they zigged when I thought they were in a zag. But it's the sourcing that, that you know, makes it so much fun is following these guys and watching them evolve. Um, Mark Silvestri, guy, hits the comic scene on a book called King Conan for Marvel. He had done some fill-ins. Uh, you're like, no, Lightfield, you're missing his horror and his war short stories at DC. No, I'm not. They're just not what put him on the map. 
He's drawing King Conan and Jimmy. I thought I was looking at the second coming of John Buscema. In case you are not familiar with early Mark Silvestri, and he'd tell you he's got a Buscema base. John Buscema was the absolute base with which he, you know, launched his style and his career. And I mean, it's great stuff. And and, and I I am of the opinion that John Buscema is one of the greatest craftsmen craftsmen, draftsmen, illustrators in comics, period. So there you go. Oh, oh no, absolutely. And, and what I think what's, what's so cool is that, that Sylvesteri took this, this base, this Buscema base. And I mean, that is, you know, very much, you know, the, you know, the art of Marvel in the seventies is definitely, you know, drummed in by, by Buscema, you know, by, by Buscema. I mean, I think actually that's more of the house style in the seventies of yes. Marvel seventies is Buscema. So then, I mean, that's a great starting point. And then his mastery of that, um, when he starts taking other influences and, and adding those, you know, into his, uh, his arsenal, I mean, that just, you know, that really just, just catapulted him to the top of his class. I thought Mark was, uh, I think bored towards the end of his, run at Marvel and was trying to figure the rest of us out. We were the new cats. He had come in a few years earlier. And then of course, Todd and Jim Lee and myself start to emerge. Long story short, we were at Chicago in 1992 in the uh, suite, hanging out as a collective bunch of image guys before we went out to sign. And we were doing long signing periods. We were on a break and he whipped out the pages from cyber force. And he said, uh, yeah, I'm learning some new tricks. I'm looking at you guys. I'm I'm seeing what you do. And I was like, oh my gosh. I, I looked at the Cyberforce pages and he kind of leaned into me and he goes, I'm learning your tricks, man. And what he meant by was my layouts, my big splashy layouts. And Mark had never really done stuff that was big and splashy. And I was a huge Mark fan. Trust me, Mark was one of my favorite artists of that age and his gestures and his drawing and his rendering and his light sourcing was phenomenal but he drew small he didn't draw big he never drew big and no, he was fundamentally he, sound fundamentally that's sound that's it he's, he is he's the tim duncan of of comic books and and then to see him doing giant double pages and giant figures on a page and big faces uh and then to me like honestly mark becomes the signature mark silvestri page and every time i see anybody do it now i see they're doing mark silvestri is the big head guy. He draws big faces, big heads that take up three quarters of a page. Whether it's the darkness, whether it's Hunter Killer, whether it's his cyber force, he does these big, just these big, beautiful giant heads. And I, I think at one point I was like, wow, I didn't know you could do a, a giant face or giant head that big and make it work and cascade these panels around it. So again, Mark looked, he consumed, he adapted, then he, he got his own signature style. And so again, I just love watching from the John Buscema base and Mark still has it. You can always see this really strong, fundamentally sound, as you said, structure work that he lays down on his stuff. But man, that early King Conan. And I think one of, well, my very first Chicago Comic Con, Mark walked in and Mark was, uh, I guess he was managing uh, a gym when he broke into comics. And, and when I saw Mark at the 1985 Chicago Comic-Con, um, dude had just come in from the pool. One of, one of the, one of the hallways 
when you left the main center and went kind of their, their version of Artist Alley was all these different mini ballrooms, mini rooms. And Jimmy, several of them backed up to the pool of the, you know, Marriott, Hilton, whatever the venue was that it was all being held at back in that day. Mark slides the glass door. He wasn't the only one. I'd see Bill Sienkiewicz do the same thing. These guys would lay out by the pool, enjoy themselves. Mark was a giant hulking bodybuilder of a man. Muscles on muscles, his shoulders. He was, he, when he walked in, he had long hair like Schwarzenegger, but he, a little more handsome and dashing and just gigantic. And I thought King Conan just walked in. Mark is drawing himself and he plopped his portfolio down. Like it just made a thud on the table. Close the slider. You, you could literally, like I said, you could, if you had the back row of tables, you were backed up against the glass sliders that could go right to the pool. And so these guys like Sinkevich and Mark are coming in from having their, you know, drinks and, you know, lounging. And now they're, and now they're waiting at hours and, and back to signing. I like it. And, 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 and he had King Conan pages and I looked at how lush his pencil work was, the, the, the Xeroxes, the pencils. But like I said, and I was like, this is so fitting. He's kind of the newfangled Buscema doing the Buscema, you know, Conan was synonymous with John Buscema for over a decade. But again, like Mark grew way beyond that. And even now today in Mark's work, he's, he's doing this really detailed, he break, he doesn't do solid blacks. He breaks them up into all these different line works, which could be a, a, uh, a, a, a reflection of an artist that you and I don't talk about a whole lot, but his name's Topi, Topi, T-O-P-P-I. Walt Simonson was hugely influenced by him too. But that broken line, no, no solid blacks everywhere on the body is, 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 is a, you know, congregation of lines, some tightly wound together, some separated, but, but very few spotted blacks, all your shaded areas are not solid and it's fun to pull off. I've tried it. It's, it's, if you study it, you know that it is a technique, but Mark, Mark, the great thing about Mark and guys like him, he doesn't sit still and getting back to Barry Windsor Smith, you know, Barry Windsor Smith kind of hung it up in like 1975. Didn't do comics anymore, left Conan and he wouldn't come back till 1983. And when he came back, I mean, Jimmy, his stuff looked different. He had a different signature to his work and, and there was, you know, none of that Kirby influence remained. It was a hundred percent this more elegant figure work. It was almost like he had become this romantic artist. And trust me, dude, these are the more romantic lines, harsh lines, jagged lines, friendly lines, feminine lines. These are all, I've heard artists describe these, you know? And so, so, so Barry came back a different artist and then would be the guy that everyone was biting on for years to come that signature re rendering style and he kind of toyed with it on his most famous conan saga called red nails red nails introduced what i would call the barry windsor smith stippling it was like a stippling line where yeah, there's, a, there's a style of inking called stippling with these very carefully placed lines he comes back with weapon x wolverine and jimmy he does this rendering style that is off the charts that that no one's seen in modern comics, and this is I think this is like ninety ninety one. You were grabbing you were you were grabbing those right those yeah, Marvel you know, comics those are in the pages of Marvel Comics Presents. Yeah, and I remember being a broke kid 
and <laughs> like loving those those eight pages that we would get of Weapon X yeah. and Barry Windsor Smith, and then feel completely jacked because like the rest of it like couldn't stand up to that. And I don't think there's any comics that that was put out by Marvel Comics at the time that could stand up to those eight pages of of Weapon X. But it felt really bad that there was all these like rookies and submission guys and pro am guys that were getting their tryout the rest of the book that all had to 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 be in the in the page in, in those same pages that's right and the lead off was this elegant but fierce ferocious very detailed barry windsor smith stuff everybody jumped on that line work afterwards i mean everybody kind of took it for a spin maybe it was an extended stay uh you know uh, right around that same time you would see jim lee incorporate that into the it's really around the extinction agenda. You can open that up and go, oh, Barry Windsor Smith is completely, you know, his influence is being felt immediately on a top tier book by one of those exciting up and comers who's like, well, I can do that. I can, I can see how I can incorporate that. And, and then of course you've got somebody like Scott Williams coming on top of it with his very accomplished line work. And, and like I said, I, I, whenever I look at the extinction agendas, for sure, that is the most, uh, Barry, smith influenced uh age for jim lee and look jim is like the rest of us we were all jamming and putting different influences together i, I wanted to mention going back from so there's definitely the jack age where you get rich buckler jim steranko barry barry smith i mean i'm sure i'm missing others but and, and, and dude i i can't actually leave out the guy who came onto the scene in the late seventies. And, and man, if you go get defenders number 50, it's my favorite single issue of defenders period. It is, uh, his third issue on the book. And this guy looked like the best version of Jack in the seventies. I mean, Hulk, Nighthawk, Valkyrie, the Zodiac, Keith Giffen is hitting the comic book scene and he makes no bones about it. The dude is out to do basically kind of the recent era of Jack. He is big, bold, and splashy like the Jack Kirby, Captain America, Black Panther, um, Devil Dinosaur, Machine Man, all those books. He, you know, really Captain America is when Jack comes back with Black Panther during 76, 77. And so in 77, Giffen, I tell everybody, oh my gosh, it's there's a killer double page spread with the Defenders and Hulk is they're all doing these great action poses and the, and, but, but just Jack, there was a storytelling that Jack did too with the grid and the way he would throw punches and the power and the Kirby crackle. Giffen incorporated all of that into his work and, and he would be a Kirby, a Kirby clone, kind of a Kirby guy until he would go to the Legion where he would morph, carry some of that Kirby with him and start incorporating Everything from a Jim Starlin, a little Perez, and some Mobius. But again, so the Kirby guys, they're very memorable. And, and there's no denying it. You know, again, I'm, I'm on these groups and people swoon over this stuff. I, I mean, the, if you wanted to see Jack Kirby draw Moon Knight, which to my memory he never did, but Keith Giffen drew him for three issues in The Defenders, and you're like, this is what Moon Knight would look like if Jack Kirby drew him. Exactly. And you should check those out. They are phenomenal. The, the, the layouts, the, the energy and the power. He channeled the power of Jack. Like, like literally, like, like he touched Jack's shoulder, arm, and absorbed the power and put it on the page. But the Neil Adams effect 
was just as drastic. You know, Neil Adams comes along. And again, we've talked about how Neil had a studio. The first guy that I saw that I'm like, hey, this guy could draw like Neil Adams too. But I'm in Anaheim, California in 1978. And I don't know that he's actually sharing a studio with Neil Adams. And his name is Mike Nasser, N-A-S-S-E-R. And he's doing all sorts of jobs, Marvel, DC, you know, both uh, Martian Manhunter jobs, Green Lantern jobs, Hawkeye, Mar uh, Wonder Woman. He's putting his imp imprint everywhere. But I also understand that he was assisting on Neil Adams jobs. But the guy was in, in, now in Mike Nasser's case, he was literally like aping Neil and he wouldn't be the first. He was literally like there was a certain way Neil drew a three quarter view, a quarter view, a profile. There was no denying it. So then this would open the floodgates in Jimmy, Tom Grinberg, Mark Beecham or Tom Grinberg. I may have said that wrong. I mean, Jimmy, there was a period where the Neil Adams guys were just everywhere. And and some of them, it literally was like they just wanted to draw their favorite Neil Adams characters and put like a pose that he did of Angel from X-Men when he did the X-Men. This guy would want to do that pose, you know, with Iron Man or Thor. They just wanted to right. lift. Now, now, this is just a quick question if I could jump in. Yeah. Now, do you think that it was a matter that because it came from the Neil Adams studio, was it Neil saying, hey, I want you to draw like this? Or do you think that all these young artists were so attracted to Neil because it's like he was, you know, like one of those first early, you know, fan favorite artists. Did they draw like him and were attracted to him? I mean, and I, I guess that's kind of a chicken and the egg argument. But, I mean, did they come into the studio because it's like they, you know, wanted to be, you know, you know, disciples of Neil, worship at the altar of Neil? Or was it a matter of of because they worked at the Neil Adams Studio continuity that that they, you know, they became the clones? You know, we, we've covered how Neil had a studio. Continuity Studios was a big time, uh, a big time commercial art studio that was getting big contracts to do illustration work, cartooning. At, it's, it's, it's amazing to me if you look through the late 70s, how much, you know, re, uh, Adidas or, or uh, who, who was making the basketballs at that time? Um, uh, just just all the different sports brands and the Twinkies and the junk food, the candy bars, they would buy single page ads in Marvel, mostly Marvel, sometimes in DC. The heaviest buys were in Marvel and they would adopt a one page comic book storytelling to sell you their Twinkies, their, their, their pies, yeah, you know, I remember Doctor J and Rick Barry, you know, shooting it out, you know, on the on the yeah. What the is that? Court. What is that brand for? It's 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 is. I think it's Spalding. It's Spalding. It's, it is Spalding. I want to say um, Rawlings. No, it's Spalding. It is Spalding. And and, and uh, you know they uh the, the, so the thing is Neil was producing a ton of those. Neil was getting those contracts to deliver those one pagers. So he was oh you know you you want you want the comic book kind of uh comic book single page advertisement for your hostess pies. I'm your guy. And and look, there's also, there was a, a period where Neil was doing like Hot Wheels ads 
and 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 uh I forgot who the uh the um man the the rival the Hot Wheels at the time um they they also put out a lot of the cars I mean Neil was the guy to go to for your advertising needs in, in the 70s if you needed something storyboarded or if you needed it you know he also did all the album covers when Marvel and DC went into records giant LPs that were in all the major um, department stores. If you went to May Company, Gemco, Sears, they had a record department and, and Marvel and DC both or all these Wonder Woman records, Star Trek, Planet of the Apes. So it went beyond, uh, it went beyond just the Marvel and DC superheroes. Neil was drawing all those. Neil drew all your Star Trek albums and some of the accompanying comic books. The reason I'm telling you this, that's his studio. He would do breakdowns. He would do finishes. Other guys would do it underneath him and 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 jimmy so i think were they encouraged to draw like neil yes 100 percent. did they love it yes 100 percent. that that's where they lived and breathed uh, a guy that i mentioned before who did the epic micronauts run is michael golden he was somebody who was doing work with neil on continuity studios broke off and definitely found a different and unique style but his early Batman family, Man Bat, uh, the Demon, Micronauts. There is some heavy-duty Neil, especially in the faces. That's where it's so recognizable. Um, sometimes, like I said, early on, Jim Valentino would tell me, you're just not seeing all the Kirby in George Perez. And George himself, in an interview, would talk about, well, when he was at Marvel from like 74 to 80, that's where he got all his power. And then when he went to DC, he learned grace. That's what he said, power and grace. And at one point, when I was sharing a studio with Valentino in the late 80s, early 90s, he said, you're getting too hung up on the faces. They don't look like Jack Kirby faces, but from the neck down, and he started putting his thumb over George's Hulk and Thing, and especially Thor battling Orca in Avengers 149. And whenever George was drawing Thor in the Avengers from like 141 all the way through, you know, the 160s, he is doing Jack Kirby. The faces, George always had unique faces, but I always felt like he, his faces were Kurt Swan, who was the career Superman artist, and his bodies, I understood now, were Jack Kirby. So sometimes these guys aren't as obvious, but if you start removing body, you go, oh, okay, I'm going to cover all the faces. That looks like Jack Kirby. But yeah, I think the Neil Adams. Well, then also, also Perez also came from from the, being an assistant in. You've mentioned this on previous observations. He yeah. came from Rick Buck, uh, Rich Buckler. Yes. So if, Kirby if, guy. if you know, and so that there's that there's that direct lineage, right there. And and look, man, I I know. So we've all heard of this. Okay, so brilliant artist of his age. His name's Herb Trimpey. You love him. I love him. Jimmy J had Herb. At so many of Jimmy's shows, and 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 Herb loved them, and that is where Herb and I became pals, because Herb was on the circuit doing Jimmy's Las Vegas show. He just and, was the coolest guy, man. He was awesome. Yeah, I mean, how, how many shows did he do for you? Like a, a ton. I mean, yeah. he came on out to to Vegas a couple of times, Arizona. He was out in Houston with us. I mean, That's Herb right. was awesome. That's right. And 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 so Herb was kind of cut from that uh jack kirby mold early on too he had a kirby bend to him and herb Tremp, I, I just loved him i bought everything he did his hulk his shogun warriors his godzilla 
um, his G.I. Joe. Uh, Dude, he did those Marvel 2-in-1s. I mean... Uh, yeah, he did Marvel 2-in-1. He did Marvel team-ups. The guy was brilliant. The, the team-ups. I meant the team-ups. Yeah, team -ups. no, no. Yeah, I, yeah. He, did, he did so much. Herb was a, a guy who delivered regular product. He is a legend of his age. Passed away in 2015. He and I got to know each other from your shows. And some people and your readers may know that at one point in the 90s, Herb Trimp started showing up in comic books with a Rob Liefeld style. It was very clear that he was drawing like me and Jimmy. It felt weird because it's one of those times I wanted to know, are you being asked to draw like me or are you choosing to draw like me? But he's a legend who carved his own, you know, career as Herb Trimp on this you know, like I said, this record spanning Hulk run that is most people's favorite run of the Hulk, especially people my age, prior to the Dale Keones and the Todd McFarlane's. And so, and like I said, then he's the the guy. I mean, he, Herb, I've got issues of Star Wars that he did on my spinner rack. A great standalone Luke Skywalker issue with the Dave Cockrum cover. Herb was always producing. And so suddenly, um, I see he's drawing the Fantastic Four. And it looks like kind of a Rob Liefeld approach. And so, well, I didn't want to say anything. And I and and and, and uh, I was intimidated. Uh, I didn't want to be the guy that led with that. But we get to know each other on your circuit. And Herb and I start hanging out and talking. And then no, you, got, you guys had like a you guys had like dinners. You guys had coffee. Yeah. You, yeah, had, we had, you had, had coffee. We had breakfast. We had milkshakes. Yeah, you guys were BFFs, man. Sisters of the Traveling Pants right there. He ends up sending me just, you know, an entire job that he did an inventory issue of X-Force. And this is after the fact. And the and it, it's so great. And, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. He says, Rob, I just wanted you to have these. He tells me about it at dinner. But I said, Herb, did, 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 they, did they ask you to draw in a Liefeld, like an image style? And he goes, Rob, let me tell you. Rob, I just... I saw what was going on in the industry and I felt like I could kind of try and tap in and harness that energy. And I showed up with a story that I drew in that style. He goes, and I did it because I liked it. I liked it. It appealed to me. He goes, nobody ever asked me to do it. And he goes, it, it probably extended my career by several years by showing that I was flexible. I reflected the, 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 uh, tastes of the time of the period and look man i know for a fact from guys like mark pasella who followed me on x-force and greg capullo who also i heard at your amazing shows greg capullo up on the dais up on the plat the, the stage saying that he was asked to draw like rob liefeld he was asked to do an extreme style do it like liefeld again you know when todd left spider-man they tried to fill in they tried to get somebody who looked like Todd. Uh, and, and, and for the longest time, because Todd and I were both doing Art Adams, the editor of Spider-Man, Jim Sauerkraut, was trying to get me to do Spectacular Spider-Man alongside Todd's Amazing Spider-Man. And he kept saying, this is how Jim talks, don't go to the X office. They don't need you. We need you. Come on, come join us. It's a party. We're making the X-Books nervous. Spider-Man's going up in sales. Come on. And I, I just, I just, my heart wasn't into Spider-Man. I was, I was always an X-Men guy, but they wanted that familiar style. Eric fit that. 
uh, I think Eric Larson's Spider-Man blows me away. Period. End of story. I think he pushed the envelope in ways that people didn't realize at the time. I think he took it even further than Todd. But point being is, once Eric leaves for Image, once Todd leaves for Image, they go and they seek out Mark Bagley, who wasn't drawing like Todd or Eric at the time when he was doing New Warriors, right? But he goes on Spider-Man and he adopts that language, right? And, Absolutely. And, 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 there's, and, and there is a clear delineation New War, you know, uh, Mark Bagley with New Warriors, and it's like all of a sudden Spider-Man office. It's like shifting gears, shifting gears. And and I think he was well received because he was doing a style that was uh, fitting what people like. So Herb Trimp is just, you know, trying to keep pace. And I got to tell you, because I know some guys, uh, you know, who really grew up loving Herb were so mad that he was doing, let's call it an image style, but there's a lot of life held in there. Well, it, it got him this X-Force fill-in, by the way. But And and and, and I, I didn't know Herb in the 90s. And so talking to him and sharing a late night dinner in Houston at, at, at the restaurant with him, and, and he told me, you know, what he really wanted to draw was aviation comics. He loved planes. Um, he had a character whose name escapes me now. It's not... Iron Eagle, but it's something like that. And he drew, he flew these amazing, you know, period planes. And, and that's where Herb's obsession lied. He loved drawing the military planes, the classic planes. He loved, and that's why I think he was perfect for GI Joe. Most guys don't want to draw tanks and trucks. Herb's like, yeah, that's easy. That's totally up my, up my alley. But, um, you know, so, so I, he literally was like, Rob, I made this decision on my own. It got me more work. It booked me a whole lot more jobs. This X-Force inventory story, it has Cable, it has Domino, it has Shatterstar, Feral. It's fantastic. I'm determined to over, you know, ink it over blue lines at some point. I've, I've asked, I asked Marvel a couple of years ago, if, I said, if I could do this, could we release this and give all the money to like one of the charities for comics? Like, like what, what can we do to get this off the ground? And I'm still holding out that hope that we can do that together. I didn't really expect to be mentioning that tonight, but... It's so fun. And again, when it showed up and Herb's like, I want you to have this, we become such buds and what a sweet guy. But again, an evolution of style. He, he chose that on his own instincts. I mean, there's guys we, we know there's, there's guys that I have to do a double take who, I mean, especially when Mike Turner was with us, there were guys doing Mike Turner style, right? I mean, left and right, left and right. Suddenly he became the guy people were doing Mike Turner. And prior to that, and maybe it's still a little to, to, to this day, J. Scott Campbell. There are people who can do a convincing, maybe maybe the most convincing versions of J. Scott Campbell. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. And I think I mean I think the studio system definitely uh, definitely fostered that because you know and it's it's natural if two guys have desks right next to each other, or if one guy's turning in you know, turning in a job and, you know, immediately they're photocopying it in the studios. I mean, so that, you know, so that is, you know, that is, you know, that is completely natural. And at least at some point I would like to talk about, I mean, I mean, the, the aping of styles. I mean, it seems like that, you know, from the year about 2000 or so, the, the house style of Marvel became, you know, you know, Travis Cheris style, you know, it's, it's all been Travis. And yeah. I mean, you know, you have guys that shifted gears. I mean, guys like, uh, 
by Steve McNiven, who didn't draw anything. You know, he draw, he used to draw like like Josh Middleton, and all of a sudden it's like he put a big you know you know heavy dose of Travis, and and you know did some fantastic work with Civil War and and Old Man Logan and Death of Wolverine, a great run like that. But then you have you know the 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 Coy Bells and you have the Jimmy Chungs that all you know were in comics before. You know, you could see a, you know, you could see a, you know, before Travis and after Travis, so, you know, so, influence. So let's so, let's tell people like, if if you've never heard of Travis Charest, C H A R E S T, of course the people who are diehards they have heard of him. He broke in in the early '90s and he was very much a Jim Lee clone in the way Barry Smith was a Jack Kirby clone. I mean, I actually think they're those two trajectories track the very best. And uh, Travis was booking a lot of gigs. He was given a real Jim Lee vibe. He was at DC, so he was making their books, Green Lantern, Dark Stars, Batman Covers, Huntress, look like kind of Jim Lee style. So he goes and works with Jim, transitions, and just completely starts moving away from Jim. Travis had a deep talent, the the likes that Barry... Smith, who becomes, again, comes back in 83 as Barry Windsor Smith. But Travis starts incorporating all these new elements into his style. He's very unique, very pretty people. Ironically, his people kind of continue to get shorter over time and not more elongated. You you can tell some people that it goes one way, that you either get longer or shorter. And uh, Neil Adams' people are getting longer. George Perez's people, before he retired, were getting shorter. It's just a trajectory that goes that artists go through. So long story short, Travis is now kind of a fine artist. I mean, literally the, the Barry Windsor Smith of it all. He's become kind of this, he's a painter. He, he does more. Uh, he's, he does, he's I mean, a, according, according to the cult, I mean, it seems like, because there's people who absolutely worship this artist and his, his top stuff is fantastic. There's just not much of it. I mean, right. there's really not much of it, but man, the the covers that he did, the few, you know, the few, you know, like full gigs, like uh, he did the X-Men Wildcats um, uh, crossover comic, one issue of that. And it's like, those are held in very high esteem. And it seems and he like- he did those in, in kind of an ink wash. He, it wasn't just line art. It was it was ink wash. And, and 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 again, we were all drooling over it. And everything Travis did was drool worthy. And he his his staple was he had a very specific style of face, female and male, that he drew, and and very very stylish hair. There were certain you know different definite um, earmarks of his style. So here here's here's the deal, Jimmy. As you said, he has so he has been such an influence. So, so let's see if we can just go back and forth and not repeat each other. And, and it doesn't matter who you've said already. And you can go first. And we'll see how many Travis-influenced guys we can come up with. Because I agree with you. I believe he is one of the most uh, influential guys, if not the most influential guy of the last 20 years. From being a guy who was heavily influenced by Jim to moving away and becoming the guy that would influence Everybody else. So, 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 who's a Travis guy? We'll just go back and forth. Name one. I'm going to say Steve McNiven. Okay, and I'm going to and I'm going to say Olivier Coipel. Jimmy Chung. Uh, Dave Finch. Um, Jim Lee. I think uh, started. It's it, it's funny. The clone became the influence on the 
you know, on the master, the master became the clone. So I think that there is uh, some, some Jim Lee at different points in his career. There is no way we are running out out after five. So, so throw me another name. Cause I'm, I'm like, wait, I, I, I said, Oh, I think, I think, I think Brandon Peterson, you know, put a lot of, uh, put a lot of Travis in his work. Um, yeah. I think Adam Hughes. Okay. Adam Hughes put a lot of Travis into, into his work. So, so we, uh, especially we, his male faces. So we've got Coypel, we've got Finch, we've got uh, 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 Jimmy Chung, Steve McNiven. These are big guys too. These are big. Oh, okay, uh, okay, Linnell Yu. Linnell Yu oh, had, there, had there, a big okay, there period you go. There you go. of. Uh, and, and guys, let, let's be very clear. What, what Jimmy and Rob are saying is that they, they are not. Um, we are not saying in any way, shape, or form they have adapted or co-opted Travis's work. It's an influence. You know, I'll, I'll talk again. This is. This and I'm is definitely, not, I'm definitely not throw, throwing stones here because I mean, yeah, yeah, especially not, we, back we, in the day, we, we I mean, have it's love like, for these guys. Jimmy and I both own artwork by these guys. We seek these guys work out. I said they're heavy hitters. That the, the, they get the big jobs. Stephen Niven got Civil War. Right? He's gotten several, um, you know, big name crossover, big name events. Marvel. He's a, a go-to pinch hitter for them. Uh, same with Olivia Coipel. Same with Linneal Yu. Um, Obviously, same with Dave Finch. He's probably the most successful of the guys. He's the guy who produces the most work. But I think, uh, you know, it's 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 very interesting, again, that Travis kind of semi-retreated. And you can see that there's, like you said, that definite, that I'd say from 97 to, to 90, to whatever Travis was doing in 2000. They, and his sketchbooks, you guys, Travis would put out sketchbooks and people would just eat those up his commissions and they would look and see like every angle, every, um, you know, it, it was so, his, his work is so profoundly influential and these guys, so, so just to put it in context, Seattle hits with Nirvana in 91 and the floodgates open and the grunge sound, the Seattle sound, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, who else is, who, who else is there? Um, and, and, and they're, they suddenly, dominate the scene and that's what we're talking about in, in terms of influence there was definitely a seattle sound it, oh, it's about and, and that's no and that's and that's what that's what travis was and then i mean what i do think is interesting though is travis is is the one that i mean his work i mean slow to a halt i mean there was like there became very you know like you know the covers became more sporadic um and it's just it, it was a matter that it's like he didn't produce a whole lot of work and you would hear different you know, the different, and, and again, these, you know, these turned into what I call Comic-Con myths. I heard from a guy who knew from a guy who, you know, had a drink in the bar and, and, and heard from, from his art dealer that, you know, it took him six weeks to draw a leg over and over and over, you know, in the pages of Wildcats, you know, and whether that was true or untrue, it just seemed like his work slowed down, but as, as his, his influence was uh was was adopted by others. Koi fam, Koi fam, thank you. Koi um, another. We're, we're missing a lot of names. We're so missing. And and, it's, it's and I think Again, it's it's it's. Look, um, there was a documentary a couple weeks back on epics about uh, Laurel Canyon and how that period in the seventies, how everybody was influencing everybody else. You know, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash influencing Joni Mitchell, influencing the Mamas and the Papas, and it all ends up. You know, you it, it it goes to Jackson Brown, it, it goes to the Eagles, 
They were all jamming with each other. They were all looking at each other, listening to each other's work. That's what we're talking about here. Influences. Sometimes they, it hits like a tidal wave. And look, Travis is the art Adams of his time. When I have said on this show that Todd and I would talk and Todd's like, but if art Adams isn't going to give people monthly work, we will because we love that look. We want more of that look. And if we do, so do they. And that's what we did. Maybe we're not as talented as Art Adams, but if Art can give you 48 pages a year, we can give you a couple hundred pages a year at maybe 70% of his quality. And it's just, you know, it's, 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 it's also when people debate, well, is Kobe, you know, aping Michael Jordan? Well, that actually turned out very successful. And Kobe had to hear that his entire career. Is he aping him? And, and then I remember when Vince Carter came into the league, he and Kobe were mirror images of each other. Kobe just outlasted him, you know, maybe outworked him, outhustled him, got at the right franchise. But from dunking contest to the way they moved, the, the way they scored, the slashing, people are influenced all the time. Music and, and movies and comics. And, and, and obviously, you know, with Travis, what you, he is, I think everybody was like, well, we love Travis's work. I love Travis's work. I, there was a period I had an enormous amount of his original art. I still have sketches he did in my sketchbook and different drawings. Um, I've, I've kept a smattering of it. I don't collect a lot of guys. And like you said, so, so you see a version of Travis through a Jimmy Chung lens and a version of Travis through Coipel and a version through McNiven and, you know, and a version through Finch. But they all have unique styles of their their own. But they, they would tell you they would they would. Oh, you, I mean, and you're going to see a second. You're going to see a second wave of that through the Jorge Jimenez's, you know, and things like that. You know, who are you know who are doing Batman because it seems like it's it's he's influenced by the guys who are influenced, you know, by Travis. So I mean, it's you know, it's these spheres of influence and these 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 rings, you know, that you know that that you can you know you can you can draw around these people so absolutely there was uh in the late 80s early 90s a guy named phil jimenez sweet guy he will tell you he wore it on his completely on 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 his sleeve he aped george perez in a way i did not think was possible i would i was wondering if i had george perez pages in my comic and phil was able not just the drawing but the actual page design storytelling especially when it came to covers the way george would do these collages with heads and figures combined and little, ah, uh, I mean, so, so some people it's, it's an art form. And, and so, I mean, on, on one level, I mean, there are no true originals. I can tell you right now for myself, I've had phases where I wanted to be different guys and Jack Kirby, Youngblood, like one, two, three, four are all me. And Oh, then Youngblood strike file. One and two and three are me, one hundred percent, absolutely. Jack Kirbying it up. I I was like, this is my time. I I I'm I, I'm I'm familiar enough with what I'm doing and what I want to do with my style that now I can put it on top of this Jack Kirby. I can inject this influence on top of my work. I won't lose myself. I'll gain from it. And it was all about power and poise and picking the most powerful shots, making the hits count really amping it up on the action and look I, I said mark early on did the big heads jack did the low angle upshot of giant faces 
or you've got four faces coming at you in, in a warm's eye view, whether it was the Fantastic Four, the New Gods, Captain Victory, he always pulled it off. And these, so so in Prophet, in Youngblood number two, when you open on this giant face of John Prophet, and then all, Youngblood two is maybe the most Jack Kirby, and I mean, I even have a character in there called Kirby, so I was just completely flaunting it. But we have... So much more to cover. This is going to be part one of an extensive. We did not get to Jim Steranko influencing Frank Miller, Gil Kane influencing Frank Miller, um, Frank Miller influencing Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane. Uh, we, we, we just scratched the surface because this, this is lively. It's fun. It's enlightening. I, I, I'll end with, I think, the counter to Travis, the biggest influence on comics in the 20. 20- in 20 years, and it's the one I thought you were going to say was Alex Ross. Alex Ross enters the field, does this very realistic portrayal in a way that no one ever, people thought the Neil Adams approach was realistic. Alex goes, I'll show you realistic. I'm drawing from photos. I'm painting from photos. I'm lighting my own models. And Alex is very elegant, and, and but, but very, very, he loves his worm's eye view. You want to talk about a guy where everybody's looking up very regal, very, you know, very low angle, upshot, a lot of drama there. Brian Hitch changes his entire... Brian Hitch, who came in as an Alan Davis clone, he will tell you he was an Alan Davis clone. Maybe earlier than that, a burn guy. But at one point in the late 80s, early 90s, Brian Hitch was doing the most convincing Alan Davis of all time. This is something Brian would tell you. This is not... Be, he's not being called out. He will talk about it on his social media as well. He then amps up to this realistic looking guy. And it's kind of like, well, I can take what Alex is doing, this more realistic, photorealistic approach, and I can make it more violent because Alex is, is, is more, I mean, I, I, Alex doesn't like throwing punches and getting people bloody and Brian Hitch did. And I think that's what the Ultimates really thrived off of because I remember going, these look like line art of Alex Ross. And, and I think Brian, again, would tell you, he was like, yeah, I'm going to add that, that realism. And Oh, and Brian then, Hitch had the moment, man. He had that moment where he, you know, took what was popular that was, you know, going on and, you know, and took it into a level that I don't think Alex Ross would ever, yeah, the know, violence doesn't, have, doesn't have the heart, doesn't have the, either the heart or he doesn't have the drive to go to those, to those violent places. You know, in, in in delivered as a you know as a dirty street fight. Yeah, no, you felt knuckles on the face, blood splitting out of the teeth, the snarl. Again, Alex is very his people are very elegant and glossy and beautiful. So and, influential, so influential, and they look so good framed up on your wall. I mean, Alex did stuff for me. He did some supreme paintings. They're they're beautiful. I mean, the guy. Every he's he's got an X Force cover coming out that everyone's excited about. I know I know a couple of friends have already tried to buy it off of him, and, it, and he's doing a Liefeld style. He's literally doing like my style with his paint paints over it. But from then Hitch, you got Trevor Hairstein, who was coming on strong, and we all thought was like the next Hitch going to the next level, as realistic with maybe a slightly you know more uh, calculated rendering line, maybe even slightly an attempt at a more more commercial line, but very much borrowing from Hitch. John Cassidy, 
Yeah, oh, Cassidy with his, I think that Captain America job that he did for the Marvel Knights, Captain America was very, I mean, such a wild shift from from his days doing, um, you know, doing like Desperados and all that Western stuff over at um, Omaha, oddly enough, Homage Studios uh, at Wildstorm. So is this is he, he really shifted. This is a great way. We're going to wrap this up with this story, Jimmy. You're familiar with the story. You were part of the story. The great thing is, you know, a couple of you guys have, have asked me. I'm going to be honest. I've even had some of my peers say, and and the other day when I walked into the studio to record a previous podcast, my son said, "Dad, what are you about to talk about?" And I said, "I don't know. I'm, I'm going to figure out when I turn the mic on." Jimmy and I just said influences, maybe some homages, and this took on a life of its own tonight and we didn't cover anywhere near uh, the, the, the the territory that I thought we would. And that's for the better. We went in way better, way better directions. And, and there's, there's going to be two, three, four more chapters of this because we just scratched the surface. But I'm going to tell you something, given the realistic wave that spilled over comic books that Alex Ross put his imprint on, as powerful as what we're talking about with Travis, with Brian Hitch, with Trevor Harrison, with uh, with with John Cassidy, and there's a bunch of guys we're leaving out who were making their best attempts to pull that off. I decided to go to San Diego Comic Con in 2001, I think, <laughs> and I decided to go incognito. Unlike, I'm not going to go as Rob Liefeld. I just wanted to go and see if I could do the show. Um, by myself, uh, no, just 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 walk up and down the floor, not look like myself, not be somebody in comics. So you know, at that point, I, I think I've been in comics fourteen years. So I just want to go incognito. I tell Jimmy I'm going to do this. He says you're not going to be able to pull it off. I drive to the block of Orange before I get on the freeway that morning, heading down to a Saturday, and I'll, I'll spend the night and 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 stay through Sunday. I go down, I buy one of those hats with the long mullets. I get some glasses. I buy it. I think it looks ridiculous. I abandon that look on the drive down. I'm not going to wear a, a a neon hat with that long hair mullet. What I do instead is... Yeah, I, yeah you, you would have looked like Rob Exotic from... Uh, you know, no, I would have looked exactly like Rob Exotic. So I pull my hat down really low, barely above my eyes. I used to... My buddies here in, in Orange County uh, used to go... Why do you wear your hair, your hat so high? You wear your hat so high. Your bill is practically pointing up at the sky. And I was like, oh, I noticed in pictures. I guess I do. So no, you, had the, you had the bangs going. You had you you know, were rocking I bangs. crush my hat over my brow where the bill is just almost coming out from my eyes. I put uh, just regular glasses on and I tuck my, I have a button down shirt. I tuck that into my pants and I wear my bag around like a holstered holstered around my chest and Jimmy's like, yeah, you're not going to pull this off funny enough. And this is why you need to know this. Jimmy is one of my very best pals. He comes, he, he has the badge to get me in that day. Cause I kind of improved all this and he's going to get me in with his badge and I'm waiting in the lobby. And, and again, just don't, don't, I did not plan on going. I made a last minute, you know, uh, decision to go down there. So that's why I needed a ticket in. And trust me, there are professionals that I know to this day, the week of go, Hey Rob, do you have an extra ticket to get me in? Well, Jimmy was that extra ticket that day. 
He walked by me twice in the lobby. He did not recognize me. I went up to Jimmy. Yeah, I got punked. I got punked. I went up to Jimmy's mom and asked about, she worked the booth. She was one of the best salespeople that the Jay family ever had. She knew her stuff. She had known me for years. She looked right past me. She did not know it was me. I revealed myself to her the same way I revealed myself to Jimmy. So now I'm like, wow, I can pull this off. I could pull this off. You guys listening right now have no idea how many pros I stood next to as Rob Incognito and heard them say one guy who I was licensing stuff to pushed me out of the way while he was walking down the hallway. And I chuckled. I'm like, I'm really pulling this off. Why am I telling you this story? This leads with me going to the Marvel table and standing there as their editor, who I will not reveal is speaking to a guy who's showing them their portfolio. I also, just so you know, went and hung out at Eric Larson's table, flipped through his artwork, talked to him. He did not recognize me. I was completely unrecognizable in just the most basic, you know, the most basic disguise. And I go to the Marvel table and the guy is looking at the samples. And he looks at the guy's samples and he looks up at him. And I am literally standing to the left of the guy who is getting talked to by the editor. And the editor says, yeah, you know, man, looks like you're doing, looks like you're doing some image, image style artwork, man. That's not, we don't want that. It's 2001. We want, we want realistic art. You need to draw as realistic as possible. We are, we want realistic art. We want realistic comics. We're not into that image style, man. That image style is, is, is a thing of the past. You come it up at us with realistic art. And I just chuckled like, look, again, no, we had, dude, that we, was okay. In, in Rob, you mentioned, you mentioned Trevor Harrison earlier. The other guy that I was like, I was like biting my tongue going, what is this guy's name? What is this guy's name? Remember travel foreman? Travel foreman was another guy. He's kind of Travis and Hitch. He he he. Yes, yes. He, he married both of those. He, he he was the he was the love child of both right. of those those two schools. So, so the funny thing is, we touched on it earlier. Where are people told specifically to do specific styles and looks? There's your answer. There's an editor telling somebody. He didn't say which image artist, but image had been had now become a code word for a certain style of splashy art it could have been his layouts he was you know referring to i just remember it looked you know you know it, it, it would have fit somewhere between extreme wildstorm and top cow but this editor was scolding him you do realistic and and i was like well that's that's great for stylized guys like myself and stylized guys stylized guys like art adams because he's a stylized guy and stylized guys like mike mignola because we're going to stand out even more against the wave of realism that didn't last that had about a four and a half year run in comics and it hasn't Greg land. I mean, Greg land. Oh, was a guy. Greg. Yes. Jimmy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, so that wave represented another huge wave of influence. And that is why we had such a great time talking today. Influences. They are fascinating to watch, to source, to watch the influences, the influenced artists, develop into something completely different and this is a topic we are gonna revisit jimmy this was this was a hoot this was a holler this was a great time um tell everybody where they can catch you jimmy everybody can catch me i don't have i'm not as i'm not as, as sporting as rob with the blue check mark but, but uh you can find me at amazing comic con 
on social media. That's at Amazing Comic Con. No funky spelling. Um, and uh, um, also at Amazing J Brothers. Amazing J A Y Brothers. That is our more of our retail uh, voice and platform on on Facebook and on Instagram. But you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter at Amazing Comic Con. So, guys, look for me, Rob Liefeld. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. Uh, that is my moniker there, just straight at Rob Liefeld. I got the blue check mark, which helps you uh, know that it's really me and not the imposters that lurk out there on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld because I didn't get at Rob Liefeld, and that guy's still squatting on that. But I am at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. Everybody, thanks for joining us. Influences are vast. They are deep. They are so fun to explore. We are going to revisit this very soon. Thank you for hanging out on another episode of Rob Observations. Thanks for joining us, Jimmy. We are going to talk again very soon. Everybody, take care of yourself, and uh, we will we will see each other uh, just down the road here. Thanks again. Thank you.